Thank you, Gigi. Having it read out loud is, to me, is uh, just an amazing gift to sit and listen to the story. A very moving story. And, uh, and thanks again to the worship team, as always. I, I like the acoustic sets myself, so. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning uh, seeking your face, uh, not out of fear, but out of love. We seek uh, restoration and forgiveness from the past week uh, for when we have drifted away from your presence. Father, we claim your promise of forgiveness that is found in the death of Jesus, our Savior. Father, we lay hold of your forgiveness for being so easily irritated and annoyed as ever as I usually am. And I lay hold of your promise that when we let worry get the best of us, and we lay hold of your patience and mercy, and even when we have been patient and quick-tempered and with those that we love and those that are around us, and Father, we lay hold of your mercy because we have not been considerate, considerate of the people we love and those who love us. Father, it's easy to make excuses and, and blame others for those, our failings, and to say it, that it was not our fault, it would just not be true. And so, this morning, we refuse to say it. Instead, we ask you to forgive us. Help us not to be discouraged and not get up on the process, give up on the process of being conformed to your image. And so, Father, this morning, we also come into the quietness and stillness and in your presence to begin another week so that out of this hour or hour and a half or so, we can take with us the peace and the calmness through what could be a rough and tumble kind of week. We come to you to find your wisdom so that we don't make foolish mistakes. We come to, to you to find your peace so that we won't be consumed by worry and anxiousness. And we come to you to find your love so that nothing will make us bitter or unforgiving or unkind. And we come to begin this week with you, to continue it with you, and to end it with you so that come next Sunday we won't have anything to regret, even though we know we will be asking for forgiveness again. So, Father, as uh, we ask these things as individuals, but we also ask it as a corporate body, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are continuing our series this morning on uh, a space for grace, uh, taking God's church seriously. We've looked at family gatherings. We've looked at, uh, last week, we looked at the family business. And uh, this week, we're going to be looking at the family servants, and, uh, which is, is, there's no better example of that in John chapter 13 that Gigi just read. Uh, one of the landmarks, at, uh, I went to seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the landmarks on campus is this sculpture by Max Greener of Jesus watching Peter's feet. And uh, it's a beautiful sculpture. Uh, it's kind of a landmark in the city, actually. And it's supposed to kind of personify and, and communicate visually the mission statement of Dallas Seminary, it says, officially, founded in 1924, our mission is to glorify God by preparing godly servant leaders for the proclamation of his word and the building up of the body of Christ worldwide. <clears throat> now, the word um, servant leader, uh, Dr. Hendricks, Howard Hendricks, used to pound into our heads that you are to be servants first, and then leaders may come later. 
but servant comes first. And he would pound that in our heads that you will never be a leader unless you become a servant first. And what's interesting is that, that the culture, the society, American society in general has, has, uh, has kind of put their hooks into this, this idea of servant leadership. And it's become a philosophy of leadership and not just kind of a, a catchphrase. I mean, all businesses are talking about their CEOs need to be servant leaders and all this. And we think the idea that this story that Jesus just read in chapter 13 of John is that it is this story about servant leadership. Well, it is that, but it's much, much bigger than that. Uh, Jesus is not teaching a philosophy of leadership. He is teaching a way of life. He is saying that servanthood is the distinguishing mark of the Christian disciple. That being a servant, that is what marks off an apprentice of Jesus Christ. That it's not just a philosophy of leadership that, yes, it sometimes functions. It can even make you a lot of money in the business. And it's how maybe the office will work smoother that way. It is a way of life. It's been said that uh, when two or three are gathered together, there will be conflict. And that is true. We just kind of fall into it. It's natural. And there's plenty of things to cause lots of controversy and conflict in a church. Uh, the preaching, the preacher himself, uh, the type of music, uh, leadership, uh, anything you can imagine, you know, there will be conflict over those things. Uh, I may have mentioned this before, but I had a housemate named Ron who uh, was no um, stranger to conflict. In fact, on for his birthday one year, his 30th birthday, we put together this mock novel about him called The, Autobi the Biography of Ron Cousineau, and it, it, we, we titled it Doomed to Conflict. <laughs> I mean, he took, it in, he took it in stride. He was fine. But we are. It's just, it's just normal. I know of a church in, in Mexico that actually split over the question of whether to use real flowers on the altar or artificial flowers on the altar. Now, when a conflict gets to that level, you can bet that it's not about flowers. It has nothing to do with flowers. It may have been the, it may have been the superficial issue, but it's not about flowers. It's about power. Uh, if it gets to the issue of, you know, you hear about churches splitting over the color of the carpet, it's not about the color of the carpet. It's about power. It's about this conflict of the top dog and the underdog. And who's on the top dog and who's the underdog? And it's all about that. It's not about the color of the carpet or the flower. It's about something else. And Jesus comes in and teaches this upside-down teaching and shows us this upside-down teaching for an upside-down kingdom. And what he's saying, this is not a philosophy of leadership class. This is a discipleship class. This is what marks the Christian disciple from everything else. It is a way of life. So we got to understand the context here. It, it, we, most of us know that in the context of this, that, um, <clears throat> that revolution is in the air. And the disciples are inhaling it. All right? Right before this episode, we know that, that James and John, and some, some versions include the mom in this, that the mom kind of did the dirty work for them. But they come to Jesus, and they want to be on either side of his throne because they're expecting Jesus to take control, become empowered, and, 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 and gain all this political power, and they're kind of doing this end run around the, around the rest of the disciples, and they want to be on the left and right of Jesus when this happens. So that's what's happening. This is what's, bright, this is what's in the air right now. And then now, at this moment of this Passover, Jesus does something shockingly opposite of that. 
the direct opposite of that. And that is he starts washing their feet. And that is a shocking image of what he is doing. And he's kind of, it's a parable of what's coming. And to kind of understand what's going on, you've got to understand the relationship between a teacher, a rabbi, which is Jesus is called a rabbi, and the disciple of that rabbi. Because that disciple, they're linked together. Their identities are linked together. When Paul was kind of defending his Jewish bona fides, he said, my, my teacher was the rabbi Gamaliel. And so that's how important it is. This, this guy, for centuries, he is in history known as probably the premier doctor of Jewish law. And he, Paul said, this is the guy I studied under. I'm not giving up Judaism. I'm just saying this is the fulfillment of Judaism. And so you have this, you have this relationship between the, the teacher and the disciple. And what the teacher does, the disciple does. Okay? What the teacher says, the disciple says. What the teacher is, the disciple is. And so this kind of comes into focus when, when, when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples and he comes together to Peter. When he washes Peter's feet, Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Now, he could be talking, and he's, I'm sure he was, thinking about the honor of Jesus. But I think he was also thinking about his own honor. Because if Jesus is doing this, my rabbi is doing this, what does this say about me? Because what the world says about him, the world is going to say about me. And what the teacher does and says, I will do and say. And what the teacher is, I am. And so I think Peter's having some hesitancy here that's kind of multi-layered. And when Jesus says, you know, you don't you know, wash your whole head and all that stuff, he's saying, no, you're all in. You're good. You're all in. And Peter says, I'm all in. Wash my head, my body, my feet, my hands, everything. I'm all in for this. And Jesus says, yeah, you are, but not everybody. Not everybody is all in. So he's washing his feet. So far, so good. But he's protecting Jesus' honor, but he's also protecting his own honor. And these days, in our culture, that washing the feet thing kind of becomes, ironically, just the opposite. It becomes a praiseworthy thing. And I can guarantee you that when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, they were not praising him. They were not adoring him. They were, if anything, they were snickering. Because he doesn't do that. Because when you wash the feet of the disciple, when people come into your house, there was always a bowl and a towel there, most of you know this, where the guests could wash, have their feet washed. And usually it's done by a slave. If they don't have a slave, then it's done by a kid, one of the children. And if the children can't, aren't there to do it, then it's done by the woman. But never the master. Except this master. This master does it. When they come in, they get their feet washed. And believe me, they were not praising him. They were snickering. But today we've kind of reversed that and put that in the way where this is, this is, the person is glorified. I may have told you this story before, but several years ago we had a, a mission team from, a, 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 I want to say gringos, of Americans that came down to, uh, to, to work with us. It was a medical missionary thing. And we were up in the mountains in, in the coffee plantations in a small village. And one of the missionary in charge was my friend Roger. And uh, they had a guy in charge. And these two butted heads from the very beginning. And there was a big conflict. And I know Roger. Roger's a good friend. And he can be difficult. But this was a, this was a conflict between the two of them. 
And the guy from, from the, the team stood up and, and said, we, everybody knows that we've had this conflict. I'm going to ask Roger to come up and take Roger, and I want you to take your shoes and socks off. And he began to wash Roger's feet. Every one of us in that group knew that it was Roger who was being humiliated, not the guy washing the feet. That this was a praise thing for him. Just like you might hear somebody say, well, that, you know, the pastor, he just does menial tasks. He's, he's you know, he's doing, and so the pastor can all, can get in doing menial tasks because it's glorifying. So it's possible to turn that around, but what's happening here is true humiliation. Jesus is showing what it means to die to yourself. As the master, he says, you call me teacher, you call me rabbi, which is true. Then you say what I say, you do what I do, you be as I am. And this is humiliating. So a follower of Christ is released to serve God, is released to serve the people of God, is released to serve their neighbors. Paul tells us really plainly, and we talked about this last week, that Jesus, the plan of Jesus is to rule over everything, to rule over all. You know, I mentioned last week that you know, people say, I want, I want God to break my heart with what breaks his heart. Well, what in this broken world does not break God's heart? He is desirous to rule everything. Nothing is beyond God's concern. And he equips us. He gives us gifts to do that. And as servants, we deepen our relationship with God and manifest Christ wherever we go. That's really basically our job description. Deepen our relationship with him and manifest Christ wherever we go, wherever we live. This is not serving to, to, to further an institution, to keep the machine going, to keep the church going. That's not the idea. Service is for people, for the good of the world, the good of God's people and our neighbors. To deepen our relationship with Christ and to manifest Christ wherever we are. He is not teaching a leadership philosophy. He is teaching a way of life. Servanthood is what distinguishes the Christian disciple from everyone else. So, what is he saying here? He is saying that this is a way, actually, of freedom and liberty, not enslavement. How is that possible? Because as a true servant, we get to say no to the games of the world. We get to say no to that silly, competitive hierarchy that you find everywhere in our society. We get to say no to the pecking order. Jesus is not turning it upside down. He's not reversing the pecking order. He's abolishing the pecking order. Not just turning it upside down. Pecking order is what we say in English. And it's a great me metaphor. It's a great picture because, you know, you know, chickens in a coop, they actually determine the hierarchy by literally pecking each other. The bully, the big ones, the assertive ones, they actually peck the other ones into submission and the coop kind of runs normally, smoothly. Well, Jesus is not just reversing that, he is abolishing that. He is saying this is a lifestyle and it comes out of a context, a flow of love. Jesus, when he does this, his public ministry is over, pretty much. He's only got about 15 more hours to live when he does this. And this is what he chooses to do with those last hours. 
In the first 12 chapters of John, the two key words in those, in those first 12 chapters is light and life. That is kind of the theme for those first 12 chapters. But you get to chapter 13, and the dominant theme is love. That's what characterizes these last 15 hours or so of Jesus' life in the resurrection, is love. In the first 12 chapters, John only mentions love six times. From 13 on, 31 times. It is clearly the major topic of this. And he says, this is what it looks like. This is what love looks like. It's not just some mental outlook. It's not something you keep in your head. Yeah, I love that person. It is something that is real and real life. This is what it looks like. So why did Jesus wash their feet? Well, a couple of reasons. One is to finally do away with that top dog, underdog competition thing. Do away with that. You're asking me, you want to be one left or right of my throne? Do away with that. We're abolishing the pecking order. That's the first reason he did it. The second reason he did it is because their feet were dirty. There was a need, and he met the need. When people walk in, in those days, they were walking in, it's not just dust and dirt. We're talking about garbage. We're talking about manure. We're talking about human waste. Okay? He walks in, and while the disciples were fighting over the thrones, apparently nobody was fighting over that towel. And so Jesus took the towel and washed their feet with it. And he said, this is what I want you to do. I'm not doing away with authority, but authority is not control. Authority is not manipulation. Authority comes with integrity, with virtue, with a way of life, with sincerity, with examples of love. That's where your authority comes through, he is saying. This is where it comes from. This is how you get authority. And I might as well say it, this is how you win a culture war. This is how you do it. And he's saying, this is what I want you to be like, a service, a servant. Now, there is a difference between, I think, saying, okay, I'm going to serve and being a servant. I think being a servant, there, you, can, you can say, there, well, I'll go ahead and put the this, put this slide up here. There's a difference between self-righteous service and a humble servant. Being a servant and humility, they just go together, okay? But self-righteous service is a little bit different. It kind of, it, it depends on human effort. Where a humble servant that come, flows out of love depends on your relationship with God, this deep, deepening relationship with God, and it's prompted by whispering and moving and silence that God is prompting you to do something. It is just different, different, different source of energy. There is energy, but it's not frantic. It's just part of life. Self-righteous service is obsessed with the big deal. The, the, the humble servant doesn't matter whether it's small service or big service. It doesn't really matter. Self-righteous service except with the reward and, and, the, and the, the outward appreciation that you get. But the humble servant is just as happy with hiddenness as he is with attention. The humble servant is not afraid of attention, but he doesn't seek it out either. Big difference there. One chooses who and when and how to serve. The humble servant just serves where there's a need. Jesus even served Judas. He even washed Judas' feet. He saw a need and he met it. The self-righteous surface is kind of insensitive. If he set his mind to do something because he's interested in the reward, he will do it. 
But the humble servant will listen. He can perform the service or not. It doesn't really matter. Maybe that's not what the person needs right now. But it listens to them. The self-righteous service is temporary. It's spur of the moment. It's one thing. But the humble servant, it's a way of life. It's permanent. It's part of who he is. It's a pattern of his lifestyle. And he's saying you need to be that and become that. So service and humility really do have a symbiotic lifestyle. Uh, humility is one of those virtues that we want to get, but when we strive to get it, we don't really have it. And uh, I don't know if you saw, ever saw this book, came out several years ago, Humility and How I, how I Almost Achieved It. Yeah. And we think about, well, I can achieve humility, and as soon as we achieve it, we lose it. But it's kind of this symbiotic relationship because service, true service of a servant is a service with humility. Well, how do we get humility? Well, we get humility by serving. So you kind of have these two things going on at the same time. You serve, you become a servant with humility, and you do that by serving. And believe it or not, when you do this, and, and hidden service is always better. If you're serving somebody and not taking credit for it or not showing it or it's, or it's kind of behind the scenes, that's even better. But what happens is humility starts to come in unaware. You don't even realize it. It just, it just starts to happen. And what's really strange is you almost, you almost gain more confidence in what you're doing. Your life becomes unhurried. And, and let me tell you, I, I am uh, preaching to myself right now. Because I will sit in my office and I've got a sermon to prepare or something, you know, I've got, uh, you know, something to do with this. And then people come to my office and, and I have to say, Tommy, don't take yourself so seriously. Settle down. Take it easy. Calm down. And enjoy the time with the people you're with. And I have to keep reminding myself. And that happens. Not take yourself too seriously. Because you're, you're working from a new identity as a Christ follower. You're not working out of your own ego. And what happens is you start to identify with people that you usually used to think were outcast. And the people that you envied because of their position or because of whatever, you start to have compassion on them. You start to see their, their struggles and their pain as well as their position. And those people that you thought were kind of odd and weird, you end up finding them delightful. I really love that when somebody I think is really kind of strange and all of a sudden they're really a lot of fun to be with. At least they're interesting, you know. And you start finding those people. And that's what's so great. And, and, and you start breathing these praise and adoration going on and on. And it's in this hidden service actually is a prayer. We think prayer is only verbal but the action can be a prayer as well. St. Benedict was big on this. He was said, if you want to be a prophet, he's telling his monks this, you want to be a prophet, the tool of the prophet is not the scepter, it's a hoe. It's farming. It's working in the garden. Those are prayers, he said. And when you're serving, you're praying. You're praying praise to God. And so this, is, uh, this humble servant is not announced it's, it's not a sign of weakness. 
Jesus didn't say, okay, guys, I'm going to show you what service is all about, okay? Hold on here. Let me grab this towel over here. He just did it. It's unannounced, and it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a rule. It's not a code of ethics. It's just the small things. We find those small things in the corners of life that are really the things that are important, and we serve them. Jesus didn't need anybody's approval to do this. He had God's approval. And we can get to that point where we say, I don't need anybody's approval, anybody's pat on the back, because I know this is what God wants me to do. That's the attitude that Jesus had. When we do things because we want to avoid punishment or because I want this person to like me or to get some kind of reward or to, because of the recognition or to keep somebody happy or the prestige, then that's what traps us. That's when we become enslaved because we get enslaved in the game again of competition. That's when we get enslaved. It's when we serve out of the whispering, out of the impulse of the Spirit, that's where freedom is. And we become that because it just becomes natural. So, what do we do? We practice, practice, practice. I am really big on this. I'm really big on this in spiritual formation that we practice these things if we want to develop them in our lives. I, we, I played a little bit of baseball growing up, and we did not practice double plays. I mean, we, we didn't just uh, arrive at the game and pull off a perfect double play. We practiced it and practiced it, practiced it, practiced it. So when it happens in the game, it was just automatic. Well, this is the same thing here. We just practice, 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 and it becomes automatic, and we get conformed to the image of Christ. So let me give you some examples. The service of guarding the reputation of others. Practice that. Holding your tongue. Saying you're deciding, okay, on Wednesday for 24 hours, I am not going to say one negative thing about somebody. And see how that goes. Or for 24 hours, I am only going to speak truth. I'm not going to fib, lie, shade the truth. The service of being served. We have to realize that we can be served. And that's a humbling experience for a lot of us, especially Americans. We hate to be served. We're too independent. We're too strong. But if we deny that, then we are denying Jesus' order of things. The service of being served, the service of common courtesy. This has fallen on hard times these days. Common courtesy. I've heard people say, oh, I hate it, you know, people ask me how you're doing. They don't really want to know how I'm doing. Well, that's probably true. But get over your arrogance and your snobbiness. Because that's the American way of acknowledging your presence. It's just the American way that we do in English to say, I affirm you, I recognize you, you have value, how are you? You don't have to give them a list, but it is a, it is a social ritual that we do. And all societies have them. No missionary worth his salt would go into a culture and not try to learn those things because they know they wouldn't be heard. Why do we think that's not true here with our own culture? Common courtesy gives us a hearing. It's just normal. I have a friend who, um, uh, a missionary friend, a gringo, who married a Mexican woman, and they now do seminars with other cross-cultural marriages, and they, so people can learn from their mistakes. And he said one of the biggest eye-openers for him was that his wife sneezed in the house, and he didn't say to her, salud. And she got all upset about that. And he's going, what's the big deal? 
And for her, that was a recognition that she exists, that she was there and that she was important. It's just a, yes, it's a knee-jerk reaction, but it's a recognition that he cares about her. And that may sound silly, but it's no more silly than how you doing. It's just part of it. It's part of the culture that we recognize. And common courtesy helps us, helps us recognize that, affirm somebody's worth and their presence so we can get over it. I remember when, uh, when Katie came, we had to come back for one year because she had some jaw problems and stuff. And in another, another Mexican culture, another Mexican habit is to say gracias for everything. You do something, it's gracias. You know, you just say thanks all the time. And we had a meeting with the teacher about Katie's progress and stuff, and she says, she's too polite. The kids are making fun of her because she would translate into English and go, thank you, thank you. You know, in, in Mexico, it was just part of the normal thing is recognizing somebody doing something for you. But here it's kind of fallen on hard times. Common courtesy is a good service, the service of hospitality. It doesn't have to be a gourmet meal. It's just opening your home. Open your home. Soup is the best hospitality food you can imagine. You can make it ahead of time. You can say, hey, I've got a bowl of soup you know, from, that I made yesterday. Why don't you come over for a bowl of soup with us? That's all it is. To me, the best people I have ever seen at this is Robin Shirley Bagging. And I don't know if most, most of you know them. I mean, they are masters at it just inviting people over all the time. Almost every Sunday they say, well, what are you doing for lunch? Well, come on over. And I remember the first time I went over there, she, um, she made spaghetti. And I'm not talking about she threw spaghetti in a boiling pot of water. She made the pasta, you know. And then she made the spaghetti sauce. And she made the bread. And I was just joking around. I said, well, Shirley, did you, did you churn the butter too? And she goes, well, I used to. And I go, well, I was just kidding. <laughs> She goes, now I just buy it, you know. It's like, I was only kidding. But it doesn't have to be like that. Just a bowl of soup or a sandwich. The service of hospitality, you might want to practice. The service of listening. We love God, and we began our love relationship with God because we listened to his word. Why do we think that would be different with somebody else? We begin a loving relationship with a person because we listen to their speaking. We listen to their word. In the service of bearing burdens, and that is hard to do, but, God, but Paul tells us to do it. We need to be able to do it without destroying ourselves. And it may be something simply in your mind's eye holding something, holding somebody in front of the throne before God. I don't know how to pray, but I'm just going to hold this person before you, and I'm going to bear their burdens. Do I need to take them for a ride to the airport? Do I need to get them to the doctor's office? Do I need to pick up medicine? Anything that happens to maybe lighten the burden just a little bit. And finally, the service of sharing the word of life. That's with believers and non-believers. Of sharing the word of life. I'm going to quote the Benedictines again. They would say that you go off for silence and solitude to receive a word to bring back to the body. We need each other to understand and get the full counsel of God. And it can be dangerous. It can be people saying, you know, like when I was in college, we had a pastor's wife who was telling people who to marry. You know, God told me that you're supposed to marry him. That kind of thing. It can be dangerous. But I don't want us to shrink back from that. 
I have learned to take, when people say God has told me something, I've learned to take that seriously. I had somebody in my office this week that God had told her something, and it was incredibly profound and just a great word of encouragement. We share that with each other, the service of sharing the word of life. Most of you know what the word apologetics means. Uh, apologetics is to defend the Christian faith. And in, back in when my younger years, it's usually come somebody who come out to defend creation over evolution or to, or to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was apologetics. Well, I came across a, a quote from a book not too long ago that said, service is the new, new apologetic. I disagree with that. We may have discovered it new, but it has been the apologetic from the very beginning. Service is the apologetic. Service marks the Christian disciple. That's what we bring to the world. That is the new apologetic. Maybe we have rediscovered it, but it's always been there. The church is a space for grace. And yes, the church has been called to take over but we take over in a very subversive kind of way, a very behind-the-scenes kind of way. Jesus said it's like a seed that grows into a tree. It's like yeast that works its way through the dough. The laws of man can assure justice, maybe, but the laws of God assures love. And there's a huge difference with this. God's love gives us the seed, gives us the yeast, and we can no longer have to be afraid of being a doormat or being stepped on or being manipulated or whatever because we choose to do this. The alternative is the top dog, underdog conflict, and that's when you get enslaved. The freedom is to choose to be a servant. That is the new paradigm. Broad example, if you're ever interested in reading about the civil rights movement, I highly recommend Taylor Branch's, it's actually a three-part series. Uh, this one is Parting the Waters. And it is hefty, but the stories are so compelling, it's, you just read through it. There was a, there was a, a protest in, uh, at South Carolina State, which is a traditionally black college, and, uh, and Clafton College, traditionally black schools, and they were marching to uh, sit at these segregated lunch counters. And this section about, was about a guy, uh, was, was about a guy named, named McDrew. Uh, uh, what's his name? Chuck McDrew, I believe is his name. And he opposed Martin Luther King's strategy. He was a civil rights leader also, but he opposed Martin Luther King's strategy. He said, you know, nonviolence is not the way to go. And he was an atheist. He had nothing to do with Christianity. So I just want to read this quickly. There's also a story about Deacon Jones, who played for the Los Angeles Rams. I'm sure Chuck knows, Deacon jo <laughs> knows who Deacon Jones is. Um, <clears throat> so he says, um, the, they marched downtown to sit at the segregated lunch counters. Forewarned, local police and units, special state agents intercepted them with mass force, firing tear gas and water hoses before they were arrested. 388 students of the marchers doused, choking students, herded into an enclosed park, found themselves stunned by their own calm and by the ferocity of the police rebuff. Charles McDew the leader of the Orange Bird March would always recall looking back at the melee that from the police car after his arrest to see one of the, the hulking local football stars, David Deacon Jones, holding in his arms a crippled female student who had been knocked down by the fire hoses. 
The expression on Jones's face was one of peaceful sadness instead of rage. The sight of it haunted McDo. Although he had little use for nonviolence and even less for Christianity, he became convinced that an inescapable power could be buried in the doctrines of meekness and humility. That is the new apologetic. That's what changes lives. Father, we thank you for this amazing example of Jesus. And, and I know that you appreciate how hard it is to follow this example. Father, I pray for myself this morning that you help me to practice what I preach. In Jesus' name, amen.